Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Huzefa, and today we are talking about something uber fascinating, and it stems from a conversation that I just had yesterday when I was at the Udemy offices in San Francisco. So for those of you guys who don't know what Udemy is, Udemy is an online platform resource for everything education-related and it's all video courses. Teachers in all different disciplines come and create and submit video courses along with practice materials and other resources for eager students that want to learn about anything. Uh, I have my courses on there about the SAT and the ACT and so on and so forth. But we have classes on computer programming, on how to learn, use Photoshop effectively, on how to become a better writer, There's on how to be an artist. There's all these really cool courses and anybody can make something, submit it, it goes through an approval process, and then if they like it, it's up there, people can buy it and use it, and so on and so forth, review it, which is great. So you're constantly getting feedback as a creator to improve your courses, so on and so forth. So I went down to Udemy, I know a bunch of the people at the at the office, because I recently went to an event that they threw, where I got to meet a bunch of the, bunch of the folks there, and they're really nice, really into learning. And we were having a conversation about optimizing learning. And so one of the one of the employees there was telling me about how you how you generally want to, you know, there's a there's an optimal way to space practice, memorization, etc. in order to make sure that learning is is maximized. There's there's a point at which you can be going for too long and then has the the curve drops off very quickly as far as as far as pushing things into long-term retention. And so I, it kind of piqued my interest as far as looking and seeing what's out there specifically written on this subject. And I found the most incredible article on, on this particular topic. And it's called The Science of Faster Memorization with Spaced Repetition. And I think it's, it's just such a terrific article. Now, let me give a little shout out to the author. It, it, first of all, the website, if you want to check it out, I'll put it in the show notes. It's called skillcookbook.com. And the author is a guy named Zane Clace, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Now, listen to this. This is so cool. I, I wanted to look up his bio so I could give a little of his background, and it's really cool what I found. So first of all, he went to USC for his undergraduate. He's also computer science, just like me. And he went to Cranbrook Kingswood, which is one of three private schools in the Detroit area, the suburbs of Detroit, where I grew up. Uh, it's Cranbrook, Detroit Country Day, and my other my school, Roper. Those are the three schools that were all in the same area. So it's so cool. He went to Cranbrook, which is a fantastic school. And... Even cooler, he works at Airbnb, which for those of you guys who don't know, I wrote a book on Airbnb called Get Paid for Your Pad, and it's such a great company. It's on the forefront of of just really a big social change across the globe with respect to the sharing economy. 
And this is just so cool. So I'm going to reach out to him, see if I can actually get him on the show. Uh, you guys are welcome to email him as well and say, hey, you got to come on the Scalar Learning Podcast to really talk shop. But he's written this terrific article. He's obviously a very intelligent guy. And it's all about what does it take to optimize learning? How does it, how does it work? What's been studied? And I read through his article. It's, it's pretty long. It's, it's very robust, excellent. So what I've done... So I've read through it thoroughly and I've made my notes and highlighted the pieces that I think will be most useful to all you guys listening, parents, students, whoever. And now I, we are going to go through it. So I'm not going to read it verbatim, but it's got some really, really great stuff in here. And let's get into it. So again, it is called The Science of Faster Memorization with Spaced Repetition. And Herman Ebbinghaus was somebody back in the 1800s, 1885, who set out to actually study the process of memorization and really long-term retention. So let me, let me just start by, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of this article, and then we're going to jump into all the highlighted pieces, and I'll discuss it as we go along. Acquiring, encoding, and retrieving long-term information is a topic of much, much research and many questions within the field of neuroscience. Numerous studies have affirmed intuitive beliefs about the nature of consciously acquiring knowledge, such as the importance of attention and rehearsal, and some have even yielded formulaic patterns to represent the effects of these quantities. It is difficult to generalize the best practices for learning across all humans and all topics, but there are certain neurological phenomena that may be used as an advantage in order to maximize the effectiveness of any study session. Even with the most predictable truths of memory, though, it is challenging to extrapolate from this information and make a statement about how to implement the findings in a practical way for students. Still, certain useful conclusions can be drawn from research into the brain as it pertains to learning. So that's what I'm gonna try and do for you guys, I'm parsing all this information. It's very dense, this article. So I'm gonna try and see if we can extrapolate some really cool key lessons that you can use right away if you're a student or your parent that wants to give guidance and support and advice to your child. I'm going to try and make that as easy as possible for you. Okay. So here we go. Surprisingly, one of the greatest difficulties in researching the ways in which to improve learning comes from challenges pre presented in quantifying data. It was a psychologist by the name of Herbin Ebbinghaus who most notably tackled this problem in 1885 using a set of what he called nonsense syllables. So he, he established a savings method used to sum the long-term retention of information wherein attempts required to relearn material are compared against attempts to originally learn the material in order to create an index pertinent to long-term memory. So he's comparing these two things. He's comparing, hey, or what you know, relearning stuff that we already know compared to new material. In his experiments, Ebbinghaus also established the groundwork for what would become one of the most famous and useful temporal learning effects, which is called primary recency. So we're going to jump into primary recency. What does that mean? And, and what's it all about? And what have studies shown with respect to how long should we be studying? And what are the sort of phases that our brain goes through when we're trying to learn? Among the first things he noticed was the fact that lumping studying time together into one large session was significantly less effective than breaking it into s several small sessions. So this is a huge conclusion. One long session of three, four hours with no breaks, it's not optimal. 
He also noted that further practice of material after the initial acquisition of knowledge increased retention in the long term. That makes sense. <laughs> All he's saying is for more practice, you're going to learn it more effectively. Well, no, no big surprise there. Okay, so now let's talk about prime times. Okay, this is something that this primary recency idea has these things called prime times. And this really talks about the phases where what's going on when you're sitting down. So we got a first prime time, and we've got another phase called a downtime, and then a second prime time. The prime times are most useful for learning. So that's the first prime time and the second prime time. And then it says, while retention is significantly lower during the downtime. Furthermore, as the length of any given session increases, the relative size of the downtime also increases. So that period where retention won't be as effective, it's going to grow disproportionately as the session grows. So what it means is, let's say we have a 30-minute session and you have five minutes of downtime. It's not as though if you have an hour session, now you're only going to have 10 minutes of downtime. What's going to happen is you jump to an hour, now you may have 15 or 20 minutes of that downtime. So it's going to increase disproportionately. And that's the issue. That's the reason why this article, Zane and neuroscientists advocate having these smaller sessions broken up or at least having a break of some sort. Okay. This supports Ebbinghaus's original findings in that the percentage of total time of a session which is less effective is increased during longer study sessions. So we give, he's got this graph uh, in his article where he shows for a 20 minute study session, we've got basically what looks to me to be like somewhere around like three or four minutes of downtime. When we get to up to 40 minutes, it almost looks like we got now almost 15 minutes of downtime. 10, 10 minutes maybe, and then as we get to 80 minutes, now the downtime is now, uh, it's no longer a sliver, it's almost, it's more than a third is what it looks like. It looks like almost like 35 minutes worth of downtime. So you see the downtime is increasing disproportionately. So some researchers have suggested that a study time of 20 to 30 minutes is ideal. Uh, and being that the relative size of the downtime increases well above 20% after this point, right? Like, and I said that the, the longer session, it's almost 35, almost 40%. It is clear based upon the primary recency effect that the first prime time, so now we're talking about, now let's actually look at the different prime times and what's what, what can we use these different periods for. The first prime time, meaning when you first sit down at the beginning of a session, that's most useful for learning new information. Okay, so really your brain, what, what does that tell you? That tells you that right at the beginning of a session or a class or whatever, your brain is ready to absorb new information. What about the downtime? Is that totally useless? Should you just do jumping jacks? Well, no, that's not what Zane is saying either. The research shows that the downtime is useful too for learning, but not in necessarily looking over or reviewing new material, but for the practice piece. So ideally, we want to use the first downtime to learn new information. Then we want to practice what we've learned okay, during that downtime. And then we want to go back for the second prime time. We can again now start learning something new. So the downtime is an excellent opportunity to expand learning by placing information in a different context as well as review of past information. Games and other interactive techniques are perfectly suited for maximizing downtime. Finally, the preferred use of the second prime time by teachers is that of closure, re-rehearsing information which was learned during the session, preferably in a slightly different way, in order to maximize retention for the next study sessions. So that's really interesting. 
in fact, almost serendipitously, I suppose, my my course for the SAT math is structured just like this. Now it is. I actually recently changed the structure and it actually coincides with what they're recommending. I have the critical concepts lectures, then I have several practice problems that you can work on, and then a walkthrough of those practice problems, right? So it, it's sort of like the prime time, then we have the downtime where you're doing the practice, and then you jump to second prime time, you can watch me actually solve. So it's like a review of what's already been learned, which is kind of interesting. But it seems that even if you're organizing your studying that way, let's say, for example, for history class, you can spend the beginning part just reading, researching, reviewing your notes, maybe take your use your downtime to write a couple practice essays, answer some sample questions, whatever it may be, and then come back to some review after that. All right, now we're going to shift to the discussion of long-term memory, and this is a really cool part of the article. So he says, long-term memory is said to be based upon two key factors, activation and strength. Anderson showed in 1976 Recently accessed information always performs better in retrieval time, and the amount of practice with regards to the information is relevant, assuming that the information was not recently accessed. So this makes sense, right? Like, so if you're, you're of course going to retrieve something much more quickly if it's something that's been recently accessed. So interestingly, the level of activation, which is the ease of retrieval, uh, spreads to concepts which are related to the topic that was activated. The positive benefits of activation as it pertains to recall decay quickly over time, but benefits of practice has a much longer standing impact upon the speed and quality of recall. And then it makes one other point. It says studying items which are conceptually linked will also trigger this activation effect. So what is this saying? This is saying that really the way the the, the way to optimize learning is to, if you're grouping some things that have some sort of related context, instead of just repeating one thing over and over, if you study a few things that all sort of link back to each other, that's going to improve recall and your ability to retrieve information. And he goes through, he gives an example here. So when speaking about American history, for example, it is useful that the brain will provide easier access to related terms through the use of the effect of recent activation. Ultimately, it simply implies that humans are better at recalling, okay, oh yeah, this is a, a side topic. Humans are better at recalling information that they are thinking about and using. So the idea here is, hey, if we're using the same information in a few different ways, we're using it tangentially when we're talking about a related topic, now it's gonna make everything congeal nicely in our minds and it's gonna be easier to retrieve it accurately. So that's the idea, and I, and I think that makes a lot of sense, too, when you're organizing, studying, or even if you're breaking it up. We were just talking about law school yesterday. If you, can, if you can group things together in bunches that are all related as you're arranging your study sessions, it's going to be a huge help. Okay, uh, as, as, he, as he continues on, he says, placing small bits of quickly rehearsed information in varying contexts can further improve long-term retention. Okay, so how does it do this? It says, first, it increases the probability that the information will be linked with a greater amount of other information. Secondly, it increases the depth of understanding of the information by studying other ways the information can be used. For example, when studying Chinese, this is a great example, rehearsing the same word over and over is not as useful as studying three words which share common characters. The brain uses the power of recent activation, and furthermore, the overall understanding of each individual character is improved. So this is, I think, such a cool idea, as opposed to just nailing down 
one word over and over and over. When we're thinking about vocabulary, for example, forget even about foreign languages, if we're grouping three words together that all can be used maybe in the same sentence or same context, maybe even our synonyms, it seems to be that this would be an optimal way of studying than just beating your head against one particular word over and over and over. So he says, in other words, quick rehearsal of related information is superior to repeated rehearsal of limited information. So that's the big takeaway there. We want related information. Okay. Now we're going to jump down a little bit farther. Now this part is fascinating. We have a piece of software that actually utilizes the information here. It's, a, it's an online learning tool or computer learning tool that utilizes all the data as far as the prime time, downtime, second prime time to optimize learning. So the most well-known commercial implementation is the Pimsleur Lear Language Learning System, originally developed by Paul Pimsleur based upon his research at UCLA. Each lesson is 30 minutes in length, and the intent is that the student listens to a native speaker, repeats a new word or phrase, and then the phrase is often repeated throughout the course of the lesson at graduated intervals. The Pimsleur learning system is breaking information into small manageable chunks, systematically interspersing new and old material, and reinforcing correct answers over successive intervals. The major fault of the existing implementations is that they provide no method by which the student can submit feedback, making it one-directional. My interpretation of what he means there by feedback is submitting work. Like that's one cool thing about Udemy is you can always answer quizzes and, and that's sort of a way that, and you can immediately see if you've gotten things right or wrong. Maybe that's what he's saying is missing and I haven't used the system, but that's the one thing he's saying in, in future versions, if that were remedied, it would really strengthen its ability for retention. And that's basically so that's basically the, the sum of this article if you want to read the whole thing check out the graphs and everything like that i definitely recommend you go to his his blog and check out this article and up again the link will be in the show notes so you can absolutely check that out but what i would say from this my big takeaway is if you are helping your child set up set up some way to study effectively, efficiently. And again, it's going to vary from person to person. I, I, I mean, it's, there's totally going to be variation based on willpower, learning styles, etc. But bear in mind that there is going to be somewhat of a curve, if you will, where you're going to have this really good prime time, a little bit of downtime where they need to get their bearings, maybe do some practice instead of rote memorization or reading and reviewing, and then jump back to review. And if we follow this nice curve, Maybe test out some different test time, uh, some different study session times. Try 30 minutes. Try an hour. See what's going to work best for you or your particular child and make those adjustments and go from there. So again, no one formula that fits all, but I think this is, will give you a great idea and great general foundation for figuring out a system to tweak this, improve it, and eventually perfect it. Hope that guys, hope that today's episode guys was very helpful for you and you learned a lot. Again, you can check out the show notes at www.scalerlearning.com. If you have any questions or comments, email me at huzefa at scalerlearning.com. Would absolutely love to hear from you. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. We got new episodes coming out every day this summer. So it's going to be a lot of amazing information related to education. So please make sure and do that. Thank you guys so much for joining me. See you guys next time. Take it easy. Skinner.
Skinner, learning, give me that skin and learning.